All right, Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2 tonight. And what we're going to cover is, and, and obviously Revelation chapter 2 has seven churches in it, and we're going to, well, two and three, but we're going we're gonna to go through all of them and just continue to look at the strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to try this tonight and see if it works. I don't know what's going on, but sometimes when I push the button, it does two or three, so we'll see if I can get it right. But the church at Pergamos. Now, um, Pergamos, it was located in western Turkey, but it actually had its roots in Greece. Um, and like a lot of the Greek city-states, it was essentially its own uh, kingdom at one point um, uh, in the years before Christ. Um, and it was, known, it was known in its own day as the headquarters for the worship, and I'm not going to get this right, but it's spelled A-E-S-C-U-L-A-P-I-U-S, Esculapius. I don't know if that's how you say it or not, but it was a Roman god of medicine. And you'll actually recognize it because the snake that's wrapped around the pole that you see nowadays is actually the, the symbol of that god. That's where the god of medicine comes from. And so, you know, you'll see it on the side of ambulances and things like that, the snake that's wrapped around the pole. And uh, that's, that's where it comes from, the, the snake on the staff, and uh, essentially is what it's called. But um, this was, I mean, could you imagine being in this place? But in the, in the uh, temple, which was also a hospital, Snakes crawled around on the floor just, just freely. Nothing kept them back. I mean, could you imagine going into a hospital and finding snakes crawling around all over everything? They don't stay on the floor, I can tell you that much. I wonder how many times somebody woke up with a snake curled up in the bed next to them or something like that. But, uh, uh, but the thing is, that was looked at as a good thing, you know, because the, this was the god of medicine, and it was represented by a snake. And so, you know, obviously the god was visiting you and so on. But anyway... Um, uh, Pergamos is, is actually also known in the academic circles for having the second largest library in, in all of the world. Uh, next to what? Do you remember or do you think you know which one in the ancient times had the largest library in the world? Alexandria, Egypt. It did. But Pergamos was number two. They were, they were a close second to that, and so they were very academic when it comes to those things. And of course, uh, about a century before Christ, they ended up transferring their authority over to the Roman Empire, along with the rest of the, I guess what we call the petty kingdoms in that area. It was not a big kingdom necessarily, but uh, it still exists today. It's known today as Bergama, and it's got a population of around 55,000 people, give or take. Not a big place, not a big place at all. Um, but the scripture passage that describes this church is found, as with all the, a lot of the other churches that we've been talking about in this series, in Revelation chapter 2, and so let's read that uh, tonight, Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. By the way, as we go through this, we're, this church has one strength that we're going to look at and two weaknesses. And because they're all kind of things that we have looked at before, uh, and we're going to look at it in relation to this church, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these things tonight. But see if you can pick out the strength and see if you can pick out the weaknesses as we go through this, okay? Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast here them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, 
and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. All right. The diagnosis on the church at Pergamos is, is a relatively short one, and so we're going to combine everything together tonight. We're going to look at the strength, and we're going to look at the weaknesses. One strength, two weaknesses. So we'll look at those tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these things. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. I thank you for the, your word and what we can glean from it. I pray that you'd help us as we try to do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing is this. Let me get to it. See, it's... it's there we go. Strength and weaknesses of the church of Pergnos. The first strength is that they handled persecution without denying Christ. We see that very plainly, and you probably picked that out in verse number 13. It says, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Every time I read that verse, it reminds me of um, Bob Kelly. I don't know if you remember Bob Kelly or not, old preacher. He was known as Machine Gun Kelly. He was, he was one of those preachers that could just, could, could really preach. And as he, he was getting up in years, and, uh, but he used to come to Fairhaven to preach at the preaching conference, and he got up and he preached a message about Antipas, my faithful martyr, and he preached the whole message on it. It was a great message about Antipas. And he, would, he came every year. The next year he came, and he got up there and he says, has anybody ever heard of Antipas? And everybody thought, you know, didn't know if he was joking or what, because he had just preached the whole message on that the year before. Nobody raised their hand, he preached the same message again the second year. But, uh, so we got, we got it twice. We got everything about Antipas that there was to know. And uh, I don't know if anybody ever told him that he preached it twice in a row or not, but he did. And, and uh, good message, great message. But that's exactly, it's what I'm reminded of every time we come across that. But that's, the whole idea here is that this church was faithful in the, in the face of persecution. By the way, if you've noticed, a lot of these churches that we're talking about, in fact, basically all of them that we've talked about have faced some sort of persecution. You remember the time period that they're in here. They're in the time period when the, the Jews were after them because they were denying the faith, and the Romans were after them because they were spreading the message of the gospel, which was you know interrupting, especially we talked about like in Ephesus, right? Interrupting their daily lives, interrupting their worship of their gods and everything else. So, so nobody wanted them there. Uh, and they were being persecuted from all sides, and Pergamos was no different. Um, and it's, you know, uh, we've already discussed this in some detail. In fact, just, just recently with the church at Ephesus in ref reference to, well, Ephesus and Smyrna, both of them suffering through this persecution. So we won't spend a lot of time on it tonight. It's easy to, to note that and to move on, but in all honesty, that was a huge deal. You know, and, and it almost gets overlooked because they have some of these other things that were, but I have a few things against thee. Um, but to go through the pain and the torture of persecution without denying Christ is a big thing. You know, Antipas, to be a faithful martyr. You know, we talked about, um, um, oh, his name is, is slipping my mind. Who did we talk about last week? The pastor of the church at Smyrna. Polycarp. Polycarp, that's right, thank you. Served God for 60 years as the pastor, and then he walked, not tied, not bound, not, not tied to the stake or anything like that, burned at the stake for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens here with, with Antipas, I have, his, I have Polycarp written right here in my notes. Um, but that's exactly what we had with, with Polycarp in Smyrna. Antipas was the pastor of the church at Pergamos. 
And he was obviously martyred for his belief and his faith in Jesus Christ as well. Now, he also, and we mentioned this about uh, Polycarp last, last week, but um, he also was ordained into the ministry by the Apostle John. Now, um, he uh, came to martyrdom many years before Polycarp did. Um, but still, regardless, this church stood strong through all of it. And, and John here in Revelation chapter 2 just unhesitatingly commends them for standing for the truth. But they had some weaknesses, and that's very plainly noted there in verse number 14, but I have a few things against thee. One of the weaknesses was that they had begun attempting to lord over other local churches. Um, we talked about this as well, and so again, we're not going to take the time to do that, but it, uh, to, to, to go through this in a lot of detail, but if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, you know, we, we talked about that, right? The Nicolaitans were those who wanted to come in and take over the churches and, and just lord over the people and, and tell them what they could do and couldn't do. And we kind of talked about that in the structure of a church is an independent church, right? It ought to be independent. They ought not to have a structure over the top of them and all of those kind of things. We talked about the uh, we talked about that extensively a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat it all here, but we could say this. Uh, Pergamos was on the other side of the equation from Ephesus, and uh, Ephesus, remember, that was one of their strengths, right? They got rid of the Nicolaitans. They, they pushed out the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They, the Bible says that they hated that, right? They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. In fact, we can go back just a couple verses in verse number 6, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church at Pergamos was actually on the other side of that coin, and they were, he says there, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. There was people within the church at Pergamos that were actually holding to that doctrine. And God uses some very strong language here. He says, I hate that. that that's, that's saying something when God says, I hate that. And so that was, that was the first one. That was their first weakness. But the second weakness and we're not even going to spend a, a whole lot of time on this either because we, we also covered this in, a, in a, a decent amount of detail. But they were essential. They were essential. I don't know, Brother Josh, you're going to have to get that back for me. I tapped it and, it and it pushed two of them. But anyway, the second weakness I think is a bit more obscure. But when we go into detail into this passage and look at what this passage is talking about, we can pull this out of here and also understand the passage at the same time. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 is where this is found. It says this, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So what is the doctrine of Balaam then? Obviously he's pointing this out and saying this is a grievous thing. Turn over to Numbers 31. We'll get there in a second. I think you'll remember the story of Balaam uh, and Balak. And so I'm not going to take the time to read all of that story. It actually goes back into Numbers 25, really, 20, 23, 24, 25, and kind of even on until you get to Numbers 31. But what happened was Balaam was one of the non-Jewish prophets of the Old Testament. He's listed as a prophet, but he was not Jewish. And so he was asked by the local Midian king, Balak, to call down God's disfavor, to, to, to curse the children of Israel. Uh, Balak had heard of what happened in Egypt. He was afraid of Israel. 
And he was afraid that Midian was going to be wiped out the same way that a lot of the Egyptian soldiers were wiped out, a way that a lot of these other kingdoms have, were being wiped out as Israel was moving into the promised land. And so he calls Balaam, who is a prophet, to come and put a curse on Israel to protect their kingdom. Uh, he was motivated by greed, Balaam was, and so he comes and he's determined that he's going to accept Balak's offer, even though God warned him against um, trying to bring a curse to Israel. And of course, when Balaam went uh, to Balak anyway, God stopped him with, a, with an angel with a flaming sword in the middle of the path. And do you remember what happened? His donkey spoke to him and said, basically, you dummy, you're trying to walk in God's way. You better not do that. And so Balaam didn't see the angel, his donkey did, and of course Balaam repented, but God then informed Balaam that he was free to meet Balak at this point as long as he did not uh, basically bring a curse down to Israel. So Balaam goes to meet Balak. He's still somewhat motivated by money. I think at this point he's probably somewhat motivated by keeping his head on his shoulders uh, afraid that, that, you know, Balak was going to find him and get his head cut off and whatever else. So he goes and he meets with Balak three times. Balak takes Balaam to the high place in an effort to try to get Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. Uh, three times Balaam opens his mouth and tries to bring a curse on Israel, and he's not able to do that. Um, so Balak uh, Balaam, obviously, he hadn't gotten paid by that point. He had been disappoint, uh, a disappointment to Balak uh, because he hadn't been able to curse Israel. And so he comes up with a new plan. And since he cannot prophetically curse God's people um, because God obviously was not allowing that, he advised Balak on how to, uh, how to ensnare the Israelites. And so what he tells Balak that he needs to do, and this is where we get into what we're talking about as far as being a sensual church, but what Balak, Balaam tells Balak to do is to get the prettiest young women that he can into the camp to seduce Israel's young men to join them in their sexual excesses of their pagan religious rites. Uh, we'll leave it at that. But God's response was to send a plague that killed 24,000 Jews. We see that in Numbers 25. Later, after Israel had won against the Midianites, Moses demanded that all these women be killed at the same time. And that's where we pick it up in Numbers chapter 31, verse 15. And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Of course, by this point, they've captured all of Midian. Uh, many of the Midianite soldiers were killed, um, but the women were being held captive. Verse 16, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, Okay, go, you don't keep, stay there, but go back to Revelation 2. I'm going to read this to you. He says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So, behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. That plague that he was talking about is the plague that killed 24,000 of these Israelites. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. That's a pretty strong condemnation. But all of these women that came into the camp and seduced these Israelites and caused them to sin against God. God killed all those men by sending a plague, 24,000 of them, 
And now Moses is commanding that all the babies that were born out of, that, uh, out of those relationships and all of those women be killed. And, and there's a couple things here. We're not going to, this not, the, the point tonight is not necessarily to get into all of that stuff, but I think that's a great, a great way to deal with sin. Is that harsh? Absolutely. What did the kids have to do with it? Nothing. They, they were just born, right? Uh, the women, obviously, they had their part in all of it as well. They were probably more than likely commanded by the king to go do that. But Moses was not going to allow these Israelites and the Midianites to intermingle. They were supposed to stay pure. They were God's people. And if you have a race of mixed Israelite and Midianites, you're going to have a group of people that they're probably going to be dealing with for the rest of time. And so Moses dealt very harshly with that impurity, which is exactly what that was. He said, kill every single one of them. That sounds really harsh, and that is really harsh. But that's what had to be done in order to keep the purity there in Israel. And that, I mean, to me, that's just a, a, such a strong example of what we've got to do in our lives. Yes, sometimes to keep things pure, you've got to deal harshly with things and people, but it's worth it for the purity. We've got to stay pure. Back to the question then, what was the doctrine of Balaam? Go back to Revelation chapter 2. It was Balaam's teaching to Balak to seduce God's people through this for lack of a better term, this sex cult away from Jerusalem uh, toward Baal. It's exactly what Baal worship was all about. And that's one of the reasons why Baal worship was so um, hideous and why Baal worship was so forbidden by God because it involved all of these things. And that's what the, these groves, you remember hearing that term in the Old Testament? Uh, the high places, that's what that was all about. And so in some sense then the church at Pergamos had become similar to many of these pagan cults of the day. And obviously, um, you know, this was intertwining this sensuality with the religious and with the divine. And that was not something that God was going to put up with. That's a harsh conclusion, but I think it's a justified one. If, if, if we understand the word of God correctly, that's exactly what he's talking about. When Balak, when Balaam tells Balak how to put a stumbling block in front of these children of Israel, it is through sensuality. And God is saying here in verse number 14, I have a few things against you. The first one is because you're holding to the doctrine of Balaam, which means you are allowing sensuality to come in and be a stumbling block to the people in your church. And obviously such an unholy thing in a church draws God's harsh condemnation, and rightly so. Those things don't belong in the house of God. A church is to be different than the world around it. The church is to be holy in a world that is unholy. And it's the same thing that we talk about when it comes to the music and everything else. When you allow those things into the church, it's not a far step to start allowing a lot of other things into the church as well. And I, and I mentioned this at some point. I'm not even exactly sure which message I was in or what we were talking about, but I'll mention it again because it's worth mentioning. What happens is if you are drawing a crowd in by getting them to come for the music and the lights and the show and all of that stuff, the only way that you can keep them there is by progressively going further and further and further away from God and closer and closer and closer to the world. And you're already seeing this happening. I mean, it's, it's not even like it's coming. It's here. But they get up on the stage, and the sensuality that's on the stage is just, it's just it'll, it'll boggle your mind. But they have to do that to keep the people there. Tell me how that's drawing somebody closer to God. It's not. 
It's not at all. And I can tell you this, what's going to happen is that more and more clothes are going to come off on the stage and the sensuality is going to be ramped up more and more and more until essentially there is not going to be a difference between a church and a nightclub. Not just that they look the same, but that they're going to be the same thing. That's where that, was, that's, that's where that goes. That's where that leads. And that's exactly, I believe, now I don't think they were up there with the music and you know, the contemporary worship and all of that stuff, but that's exactly what God is talking about. You're allowing this sensuality into the church, and it ought not to be there. And, and boy, that's something that as, you know, hopefully, as, I mean, not hopefully, it's, it's not something that we have in this church, uh, and, and it's something that hopefully we never will have in this church, but that's something that a lot of churches on the outside of these walls have in a lot of places in a way to draw people in, and it's the doctrine of Balaam, and God hates it, and it ought not to be part of the church. We're specifically called to be a morally pure institution. And any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage is not to be tolerated amongst God's people, especially in some twisted concept of pleasing God by doing so. And that's exactly what they pretend like they're doing. In some cases, they might even think that they're doing that. We can go in a lot of different directions with that. I'm not going to do that tonight. But a church, any church that goes easy on such loose living and on such open immorality is heading down an appalling road, and God hates it. You see what God says? Look what he says in verse number 16, and we're done. We're going to conclude with this, but look what he says. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Sometimes I wonder, how do these churches succeed? You know? Um, and and, and I'm, I, you know, I, I won't even name any church names because a lot of these, I don't know exactly what's going on in the inside. You, you, you can tell for the most part by looking at their pictures and watching the videos and stuff like that that you do know what's going on. But some of these churches that are huge, 10, 15,000 people that go there on a Sunday, how does that happen? Is God blessing them? Is that why they're growing? You know, they're pretending at least to preach the gospel uh, how, how are they succeeding? Well, the thing is, anybody can draw a crowd. Look what happens when you have a football game with 50,000 people there. doesn't mean God's in it because 50,000 people came, right? You can, you can have a stadium filled up for, a, for a Donald Trump coming to give a speech. doesn't mean that God's ordained that. And that those people are being led there by God, right? A church just or, 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 or a, a building that calls itself a church can draw a crowd. But I'll tell you this, it's going to come down eventually. It's going to collapse eventually because it's not built on the solid rock, it's built on sand. And even though it looks like it's flourishing right now, even though it looks like everybody's going there now, and it looks like God's blessing them, and it looks like they have all this success it's going to collapse because it's not built on the right foundation. And because of what this verse says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Not only, not only is God going to judge them, but he's going to actively fight against them. That's not a person that I want to fight against. I want God to be on my side, not against me. And what's happening in a lot of these places is they're seeing that success right now. At least that's what they're calling it. Oh, look what God's doing here. Look how God's blessing us. They're misinterpreting those things because they have all of that sensuality in there. They have all of these things that God is condemning these churches for. 
And God's not going to allow it to continue. Eventually, it's going to fall. It's going to fall because it cannot stand if it's not built on the Word of God. And God's given them the chance. Repent or else. Repent or else. Repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Covered this whole thing in quite a lot of detail a few weeks back, but it's worth revisiting again because it's so important that we do things the right way, that we do things without the sensuality, that we do things without the, uh, the lording over and all of that kind of stuff. But let me conclude like this. He is pure. We're his people, and so we ought to be pure. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for the time we can spend together. Thank you for the examples that we have in your word, the strengths. God, I pray that you'd help us to emulate those and the weaknesses. I pray that you'd help us to stay as far away from them as we can. We certainly don't want to be fighting against you. We want to be fighting with you. We want to be going in the same direction that you're going in. We want to be holy like you're holy. And I pray that you'd help us as we try to do that. Thank you for what you do for us. I pray that you give us a good rest of the week in Jesus' name. Amen.